Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'm happy to get to share with you tonight uh, about the Dharma. And the aspect that I want to talk about tonight is about refuge or finding safety. So I'll tell you a little bit about uh, my own story too, and my relationship to the practice of taking refuge, which has definitely evolved over the time of my practice. And uh, I was kind of a young spiritual seeker uh, and a young self-directed meditator as a child and had a lot of questions and uh, tried to ask the grown-ups around me these questions and uh, didn't find them very helpful, actually. So uh, I kept asking the questions and kept looking for people who could help me to answer these questions and then read a lot of different spiritual books in this uh, quest, different, tried different practices, and eventually ended up uh, finding the Dharma. And I remember at some point, I think when I was in high school, I read some Dharma books, and the uh, teacher had uh, talked about it. And I said, so what do you do to, to like, join these, this thing? You know, like, what do you do to get on board. I was, I was down with it, you know, what do you, what do, you do? And uh, he's like, well, you know, the traditional thing that is in all the different Buddhist um, traditions is this taking of refuge. So this, you know, you recited this, you know, go for refuge to the Buddha, go for refuge to the Dhamma, go for refuge to the Sangha. And uh, I was not into it, I have to say. I, it sounded to me just like, oh, you just say these things, it's just like some more magic words or uh, and then the bowing thing too, you know, I heard about that. I was not into that either at all. Uh, so I kind of skipped it for a while. And then I found my way to practice and actually started doing the practice. And what I really wanted was connection to the truth. You know, I really wanted to know this myself. And when I found the path of practice and also connected with people who are teachers, uh, it was clear to me like, oh yeah, these people actually do know. These people know something that I want to understand myself. Yeah, I would like to know this. Uh, so I started out taking refuge in the practice itself and connecting with the teachings, the Dhamma in this way. But I started to consider like, well, what is refuge anyway? And I invite you in this uh, evening to consider this for yourself too. So what is refuge? What does it mean for you to take refuge. What is it that you seek refuge from for yourself? And what is it that we can actually reliably go to for refuge? So uh, refuge is a place of safety. So a place where you can be protected from harm and danger. And you can relax there in the refuge. So you can let go of your fear. Uh, It's a secure place for you. So for some people, actually, their home feels like a refuge. You know, like you have to go to work and do all these things during the day. And then when you come home, you can like take off your shoes and put on your comfy pajamas and relax and feel safe. And uh, it feels like, oh, okay, this could be like a refuge for me. I recently was playing uh, with some nieces and nephews of mine and we were playing tag. And, uh, you know, when there's tag game, you always have something that's a base. And so the base is your refuge. So when you touch the base, like you can't be tagged uh, or out or become it or whatever it is, right? So so there's some base that you can hang on to there, right? And actually tag is kind of a good... um, uh, mini version of samsara, getting like chased around by small children, (laughs) I'd say, you know... And then seeking something. It's very tiring. Like small children have a lot of energy. You know, it's seeking the base. I spend a lot of time on base, you know. (laughs) 
So chasing and being chased. And this is actually what our life often feels like in some way. It's like chasing and being chased, you know, all the time. Chasing these different things. Another example for refuge, uh, I I went to a a good friend's wedding recently in um, New Hampshire. And uh, it was in a place that had a big lake. And I really like swimming. So uh, I was really excited to swim in the lake. And here in the Bay Area, I swim in a swimming pool. And, you know, when you swim in a swimming pool, you swim one length and then you hit the wall and you have to turn around and, like, go back again, right, and back and forth. And I still enjoy the swimming, but this was very special to get to swim in this lake. So my friend said, oh, you know, you could actually swim to that island over there. And the island looked a bit far, but I thought, well, I swim usually half an hour, so maybe I can swim to the island. Maybe that's true, you know. So I got in the water and started swimming, and... uh, there was no wall to hold on to like there is in the swimming pool, you know, when you get tired. So I was swimming, I had goggles on, and after a while I would get tired, but fortunately I could see with the goggles in the, um, it was a very clear lake, and um, periodically I could find this rock that was tall enough that I could actually stand on it and rest there and actually, you know, breathe and not have to tread water for a while. So then I would rest there, and this was kind of my refuge, this rock. You know, I could actually not have to struggle for a little while not have to strain. Uh, I could regain my energy and be uh, at peace again and then start out. So I actually did make it to the island uh, in this way, but seeking these places of refuge you know, along the way. So another refuge that I've um, visited and um, have heard about also is um, in uh, Hawaii, where my friends Steve and Kamala are from here. And uh, apparently in ancient Hawaii, there was this idea of places of refuge. And so there, was, there were these uh, strict rules that people had to follow. Uh, and if you broke one of these rules, a, a kapu, like the taboos, then uh, some of them were punishable by death. But you actually could be safe if you made it to one of these places of refuge. And then you could go through this uh, ceremony of absolution, uh, in which you are forgiven uh, and have some uh, freedom from that and then emerge. And apparently also this was a place where the uh, people who were uh, defeated warriors could go as a place of refuge or even uh, people who were non-combatants in a war who wanted to find safety could go to these places of refuge, the pu'u honua. So I've visited some of these places and some of them, they're kind of these, uh, you know, historical sites now in Hawaii are actually in places that you think like, well, how do you get there? You know, it's actually, it actually looks difficult to get to these places, right? So I guess that's part of the struggle is, you know, to boat or swim or climb or different things to get to it. But they are accessible. So you actually can find refuge there. And there's something about that kind of refuge that is also very resonant for me. It's like, oh, a place that you can go and feel at, at ease and feel rest, um, where you can bring everything. You can bring the mistakes that you've made. You, know? you can bring your broken heart there. You can bring your defeats and find safety. So don't we all long for that place? You know, don't we all long for having that place somewhere in our lives, if not all the time? So it's helpful to consider what can be a refuge, but also to consider, perhaps before that, refuge from what? So what is it that we seek refuge from? So you can consider this for yourself. You know, what is it actually that I seek refuge from? What is it that I need this kind of safety or security or rest from? So here on retreat, you could, maybe uh, some of you might think it's like your own crazy active mind, right? Uh, Like, how do you find refuge from that? The Buddha articulated uh, that which we seek refuge from, broadly speaking, as dukkha. So dukkha is uh, roughly translated as pain, stress, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, many different translations. The birth is dukkha, said the Buddha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. 
sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved, the unbeloved, is dukkha. So being in proximity to that which you don't like. Separation from the loved is dukkha. So being separated from that which you love. Not getting what you want is dukkha, obviously. And in short, he says, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. So there's a lot covered under all of that. Yeah. So part of what we find, and, and to continue the story that Joseph was telling, is that when we look for some security in anything, in our experience, we find that it is not there because everything is actually changing. And yet for us, the unenlightened mind continues to seek refuge in a variety of things that are unreliable. So you can consider what it is that you seek refuge in. These these unreliable refuges that we habitually go to. I remember seeing a a commercial on TV for um, a truck and they started out describing dukkha very well. So they were like, uh, you know, this clearly was aimed at like men or heterosexual men. So they're like, women leave you, you know, and they show someone slamming the door and and it was like, bosses fire you, you know, and show someone giving a pink slip, you know, and then it was like, um, you know, the weather betrays you and shows like a storm and you're camping and stuff. But then their answer was their brand of truck was the reliable (laughs) refuge, you know. Which seems uh, suspect since there are actually all these mechanics out there, right? (laughs) It suggests that maybe that isn't the permanent refuge you could go for. But, you know, I I noticed when I was watching this commercial, this resonance, like, yes, yes, yes. And they're like, oh, no, you know, it's not that, right? Uh, But so often we're duped by something, you know, and a lot of the time it actually is stuff, you know, and this is actually the story that's told to us, I would say, in uh, American society a lot is like take refuge in stuff, you know, take refuge in belongings, take refuge in wealth, uh, take refuge in consumption, you know, get nice stuff and you'll be happy, right? Get nicer stuff and you'll be happier, right? The nice stuff you just bought is now obsolete, so you need to get the next model already, right? Uh, Like as you buy your phone, the next model is coming out and you need to get the next one, right? But obviously it's kind of like an endless cycle in this. And you can talk about it, it's easy to talk about, but then notice how one goes to this in one's mind, you know? Notice the movement of mind towards like, oh, if I had this thing, if I just had this thing, and the parentheses is like, then everything would be perfect, right? Everything would be fine. We go to refuge in our body or in our appearance. So trying to look a certain way or trying to keep our appearance a certain way. So also quite a losing battle, continuously losing battle. And uh, it becomes more apparent as you get older, right, too the body starts to betray us, it seems. Uh, It only seems like betrayal because we have this expectation that it will stay strong and healthy forever. Some people get this lesson very young. You know, already from the time they're very young, they know this, that the body is not reliable. But usually, even if there's some aspect that we know is unreliable, there are other aspects that we're kind of not paying attention to as unreliable until they fail. So we usually don't notice the things that are working well until they stop working well, and then they become also a problem for us in the body. So I had, uh, have had a, a pretty healthy uh, and athletic life, and uh, though also I've been plagued with a number of different injuries, and uh, it seems like for some reason just all along the right side of my body is like all different injuries. So I dislocated my shoulder when I was playing rugby. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I, I knocked out this knee playing soccer and tore ligaments and uh, you know bones bashed together. And uh, they had to put in a cadaver ligament to 
hold it back together again and things like that. And uh, each time it makes me realize like, oh yeah, you know, I was careful of this and careful of this, but I sort of took for granted this other part of my body, you know, until it was in pain, until it's no longer working properly. And so often it's like this, like we don't notice the things that we're taking refuge in, which are not actually reliable, until they fail us. So we take refuge sometimes in people liking us. So I want people to like me. And I put a lot of effort into that. And I worry that if people don't like me, then uh, my life will be very difficult. I'll be very sad. We take refuge in relationships. So this is kind of a mixed area because, uh, of course, you can have relationships with people. But of course, if you've lived a long time with one person, you realize that both of you change. So you change over time, and so does the other person. And so the relationship then the connection between the two of you also has to continuously change. You have to continuously renew that. You know, to meet anew, like who is this person? Right? And how do I relate to them now? You can't actually rely on the old way of doing things. And yet sometimes we try to take refuge in relationship. Or if you don't have a relationship, you have this idea, like, oh, when I find that person, you know, and, uh, and actually marry them or... Uh, settle down with them, then I'll be fine. And my life will be good. We take refuge in identity. So this is sometimes a more subtle one of what we look for. But we have this idea of who we are. And it becomes very difficult for us when that gets disrupted. So a friend of mine uh, started working at uh, a credit card company and her area that she works in is on identity theft. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because that's in the modern era now is this identity theft is like you have a bunch of numbers and this is your identity and someone can steal your identity through getting these numbers. You know. Or we have these magic passwords and people can get the magic passwords and then they have your quote-unquote identity. And it does cause a lot of difficulty, you know, in financial realm and so on, if that happens. I spent some time um, studying in uh, Bali in Indonesia, and there they had a different idea of identity theft. Uh, This is in the 80s, but there was this idea that people could do black magic um, with your, uh, like your hair or your fingernails or things like that. So if you cut your hair or cut your fingernails, you have to be very careful where you put this, like you have to bury it. Or someone could take this and actually uh, cast some spell on you or do some kind of thing like that. So it's kind of like you know, putting things in the shredder now. It's like, oh, shred your credit card documents. It was the same thing, but this thing with hair and fingernails, right? It's like the new version of that, right? So what do we call our identity? And for, for so many of us, again, we don't see it until it gets pulled out from under us. So for some people, it's the identity as a mother or a father, and then when the kids start to grow up, it gets shaken. It's like, oh, I was actually taking refuge. I was sort of building my security on that identity. For some people, it's identity with a profession, with a job. And we only notice how strongly we got identified with that when that job ends or when our association with that organization ends. Or sometimes when we have to do something radical like go and retreat, where for a period of time, we're not actually projecting that identity and no one knows what we do. And we actually don't have anyone reinforcing that. And we get to see what that's actually like. So it's helpful to reflect on this and also to notice where it is that we go for refuge in our life. You know, where are we putting our energy Where are we seeking this source of permanent stability? So in some ways you can think about it like it's like a mandala, you know, so there are these uh, mandalas that are 
small kind of models of the universe that are made. And you can see Tibetan monks make them with sand sometimes. I believe they also make them in the Navajo tradition. And there also are different uh, kind of mandalas that can be seen in other areas too. So it's basically a model where there's something in the center and then there's uh, extended boundaries of that. So the solar system in some ways is like a mandala. So it's like the sun is at the center and the different planets. So this is one mandala that we have. And then occasionally like poor Pluto got kicked out of that mandala, right? It's like that, stretched out. Or even scientifically, you know, like an atom, there's a nucleus and there's electrons going around it. It's sort of like a model. It is something, but it also is kind of a model for this. So those of you who did the metta practice uh, the last week, or even just today, you know, there's actually kind of a mandala in that. You know, the center of the mandala, like uh, yourself or the person who's easiest to wish well for, and then maybe your friends, and then maybe the people you don't know, and then in the outskirts as the difficult people, the enemies, you know, or those who get kicked out, you know, like Pluto gets kicked out of the system, right? It's like there's the people who get kicked off of the, the well-wishing area, right? You're not even in my solar system, you're out, right? Like that, right? So I bring up this idea of mandala because it's interesting to consider, like, what is actually in the center of my mandala of my life? Both consciously, what have I put there? But also unconsciously, what have I put there? And see in this, you know, where it is that I am actually going for refuge. What am I putting my trust in? What am I investing in? What do I look to for safety, for security? So one of the places that we constantly go, and this is some version of many of these different uh, places that we've gone for refuge that are false refuges, is basically for pleasant experiences. You're trying to line up pleasant experiences. And you can look at this strategy with compassion as kind of the best guess of the unenlightened mind about what to do given samsara. You know, given that everything seems to be changing and some things are unpleasant and some things are pleasant, why not just try and line up all pleasant things? So the trouble is that it's hard to do when everything's not in your control. But notice how you might be trying to do this over and over again in large and small ways. Notice this in your practice too. So as much as the instructions and the practice is awareness and allowing whatever the object is to come and go and see it and notice the impermanence, notice if there's a tendency to prefer the pleasant ones and to consider the practice periods in which you have pleasant experiences better than the ones in which you have difficult experiences. And notice the machinations of the mind to get back to that kind of pleasant experience. To try to concoct whatever it was that created that for the pleasant. It really comes up in so many different ways, over and over again. And I see this in my own mind too. You know, this grasping at pleasure, this wanting that and thinking that's much better. You know, that's the right way, that's the right path. And when there's something that's difficult, when there's something that's unpleasant that comes up, that's the wrong path, you know, clearly. That's the wrong track. So you could consider in our our life, you know, if there's many different areas of our life, our usual recipe for refuge, for happiness, is to try to make all of them be good. So, you know, if you say there's sort of like the graphic equalizer of your life, 10 different areas, you have your health and your relationships and your work and uh, maybe your uh, fitness life and nutrition and your family and creative life and you could even add your automotive life and, you know, different things like this, right? And they're all going up and down, right? So sometimes you're very fit, sometimes you're not, sometimes you have a good relationship with your family, sometimes it's difficult, sometimes work is good, sometimes work is difficult, sometimes your neighbors are noisy, sometimes then they move away and their better ones come, right? 
So, but our strategy for happiness is like, I'm going to take all of those up to 10 and I'm going to hold it there, you know, <laughs> forever, right? Like I'm going to just try and get all of that machinate to make all of this pleasant, all of this follow my script and hold it there. And that's my refuge. You know, that's the, my recipe for happiness. So even as I say that, it's so doomed, right? It's like, like even on, a, on a, just a conversational level, it seems so, it's like such a, a hopeless strategy to think about that. <laughs> and even if for one blessed moment you get them all up to 10, you know, in the world of change, it's just they immediately start to dance around again, right? You know, they immediately ch- start to dance around again. So the Buddha described this. He's the, the worldly winds, actually. You know, everyone is subject to these different condi- changing conditions, so pleasure and pain, all of us are subject to them in the body, in our senses. Gain and loss, we get things, we lose things. Sometimes we have great gains, sometimes we don't. Praise and blame, sometimes people like us and say good things about us. Sometimes people don't. Sometimes people blame us for things. Sometimes it is our fault, sometimes it's not our fault. We get blamed anyway. And then what's called fame and disrepute also. So sometimes you have good reputation, sometimes you have a bad reputation. No one is, is uh, immune from these. So even if you think about the best person you could think of, the person who's the most wholesome person you can think of, they too are subject to these. So even the Buddha himself actually, subject to pain. So he actually continued to have physical body pain particularly from his austerity practices. He actually also grew old, he got sick, and he died. During his life, many people loved him and revered him and learned from him. Other people did not. So there were people who disliked him, who actually were out to get him, in fact, who tried to kill him, And even of contemporary figures, you can see people who you might think like, oh, that person is really such a good person. So the Dalai Lama or Aung San Suu Kyi or whoever it is you can think of. You know, there are people who want these people harmed. These people are all subject to different conditions in their life. And these two, in fact, that I've mentioned have suffered a lot. So what is it that we can place in the center of this mandala? You know, what is it that we can actually put in the center of our lives that we can take refuge in? So my original resistance to this idea of taking refuge was partly because I think I misunderstood what it was about. And now my understanding of it has evolved to consider it actually just an orientation towards practice and towards life. And it's continued to evolve for me as I've been practicing. So it's actually an articulation of our intentions on the spiritual path and in our lives. It's a reminder to ourselves of what is important to us. It's actually trying to skillfully direct the monkey mind and direct our hearts in a skillful direction. So aiming ourselves in the direction of wisdom, in the direction of freedom. So the traditional refuges, uh, as we did them in the beginning of the retreat and as we're doing them in the mornings here, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dhamma, I take refuge in the Sangha. So the traditional uh, understanding of the Buddha is the Buddha who is the historical person uh, who lived 2,600 years ago in northern India, who went out on his own existential search his own spiritual quest and who actually attained enlightenment. So was actually able to uproot the defilements from his mind to become free and then to teach. And the teachings have continued uh, to this day. 
So at the time when I first heard about this, I didn't actually have so much re- re- uh, relationship with the Buddha himself as a historical figure. It was just like some other old dead person, you know, that you read about or something. And then I think as I started to hear the teachings more, uh, I gained a lot of respect for the Buddha. And then as I started to practice more, I got more interested, partly because I started to have these different experiences that were not common you know, experiences that you hear talked about in modern day, in the newspaper or on TV or something like that. You know. But I started to read the suttas, and it's like, oh, here's all these people who are actually doing this practice. And they kind of became my spiritual friends you know, in some way. It's like reading the suttas. And I started to gain so much respect for the Buddha as a teacher, as a teacher and as an awakened being, and really as a genius, you know, as a brilliant, brilliant mind. So I went through a a period of um, several years when I would read the suttas, um, sort of one a day. So I read through the Majjhima Nikaya and the Digha Nikaya and Samyutta and Anguttara, it's sort of like taking vitamins. So I just read a sutta in the beginning of the day and then kind of let it sit with me. And uh, it was very interesting and helpful practice. Then kind of during the day that would echo in certain things that happened or it would come to mind or I'd reflect on them and read some more things about this particular teaching and things like that. And through this, the, the Buddha himself sort of came to life for me as did all of the other disciples of the Buddha. So I think it's kind of like if you uh, become a fan of a particular TV show or something and you watch this often, you know, then you kind of know these different characters in some way. You know? uh, so whatever your show of choice might have been, so it's like uh, Dawson's Creek or you know, Mary Tyler Moore. Or, you know, I'm trying to gauge shows from different eras here for the <laughs> <laughs> varied audiences here. You know. So then, you know, you know the different characters in this way, kind of like, oh, yeah, oh, that's, uh, you know, that's what, uh, you know, Kojak does or something like that, right? <laughs> so kind of like that, you know, from reading these, um, these suttas, you know, I kind of got this sense like, oh, that's Sariputra, and oh, that's Ananda, and that's Moggallana, like, you know, these, these different uh, people from 2,600 years ago really kind of came to life for me. Um, and still in some way I consider them, you know, these spiritual friends. So the Buddha was this historical person, and it could be that you have a relationship with the Buddha, either through the teachings you've heard from uh, other teachers, or from your own uh, reading and understanding about him, or even just from a sense of faith some people have. You know? Sometimes people have just seeing the Buddha image, a great sense of faith. Th- there's something about this too, because I see the Buddha used a lot in advertising and things now, right? or even in... Um, you know, in San Francisco in some like lounge or something like that. And, you know, in some ways it's like a problematic cultural appropriation thing. And it's like, oh, you're using this to sell whatever thing it is, like Jamba Juice or something, right? (laughs) Seriously, there was a Jamba Juice thing that was like that. But then on the other hand, I always think there's some uh, heart yearning for peace or realization or something. I, I, I feel like there's some grain of that in every heart. And that sometimes people see that image and it represents something to them. Yeah. You know, and then it gets distorted trying to sell something, granted, but like there's something in that. So sometimes even just the image of the Buddha, even if you don't know that much about him, can give you some sense of um, faith or wanting to take refuge. Now in the time of the Buddha, this was actually something people did. So in some of these suttas, it would be like someone would come and meet him and um, they would have a conversation with him and ask him questions about their, uh, their doubts or their topics or ask about spiritual practice or, you know, whatever their great question was of their life, they'd come to him and, and very sincerely ask him these questions. And they'd engage in a dialogue and then uh, in many of these dialogues towards the end, the person would say, you know, I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go to, go to refuge for, to the Dhamma. Like I, t- I take refuge in the Sangha. So they would actually go for refuge in this way. And then sometimes it started to echo out, right? So then actually people would meet these other Sangha members. So like this Mughalana, Sariputta, these other people. And then they, they didn't even meet the Buddha, but then from hearing the teachings through them, through these enlightened beings, they would say like, oh, I want to take refuge too. I take refuge in the Buddha, so on. 
Sometimes I think about it, it's like, you know, if you meet this person and you're very impressed with them, their bearing or, you know, their conduct, their purity, uh, their wisdom. And then it's like, oh, you know, I, I would like to, to know that too. Like, I would like to connect with that. And it's a little bit what I described when I was saying, like, yeah, I met these people who were teachers. And I was like, that's what I want to know. You know, that's, what I, that's the kind of grown up I want to be, is like that kind of person, right? So you can say on some um, mundane level, it's like if you see someone who has a haircut that you like, you know, and you're like, whoa, where'd you get your haircut, you know? Right, like you want to know, like, oh, where's that? I would like to get my haircut there. That would be, you know, right. But on a, this is on a very much deeper level. Like you see someone and there's something deeper than haircut that you resonate with, you know? And it's like, oh, I want, I want to connect with that. I want to be part of that. And so then uh, these people who didn't even know the Buddha would ask for a refuge, so there's, there's actually some funny stories where sometimes um, the Buddha would, was traveling and he would meet someone who had gone for refuge to the Buddha, but they hadn't actually met him before. And uh, there was not, you know, TV, internet, whatnot around, so they didn't know what he actually looked like. So they would meet him and they would tell him that they were a follower of the Buddha, not knowing this was actually the Buddha, you know. Uh, and then they would engage in some conversation and then usually towards the end, the Buddha would like tell them who he is and, you know, um, they would like doubly go for refuge and you know, they, they'd apologize for any, you know, any kind of disrespect they'd given or something like that. So there's this sort of historical person, but actually, you know, the Buddha himself uh, was not about the body of the Buddha, you know, and it wasn't even actually about the story of the Buddha as inspiring as that is. So the thing that was unique about the Buddha was the freedom of the mind, the liberation, the enlightenment. Right? So a mind that had attained complete wisdom, complete purity, complete compassion. So a mind that was completely free from this blinding conditioning that drives most of us for a lot of the time. So we take refuge also in the Buddha. It can mean taking refuge in the possibility of this, you know, that this is possible for the human mind. And particularly, I would say, in taking refuge in the possibility that this is possible for you. So for me, this practice of refuge is very personal. And whenever I take refuge, I try to connect very much with the meaning of that in that moment, as sincerely as I can. And I think that's what helps our practice. You know, that's what helps hone our intention. So to connect with, like, what do I actually think is possible? You know, what, what is my aspiration in the practice, in this life, on this retreat? And it's really important to hold that as a possibility, right? So anything you want to do, if you don't actually think it's possible, it's hard to put effort towards it, right? So even in the story I said about, you know, swimming towards that island in the lake, if I didn't think I could get to the, the island, like I would have been swimming very kind of half-heartedly. It would have been about the swim maybe, but yeah, I couldn't really get there, you know. But I actually had faith that I could do this. Oh, yeah, I could swim for half an hour. That could be, that's possible. Right? So to have faith in your own, the own possibilities of your own awakening, your own freedom, your own peacefulness, or whatever that means for you. So whatever liberation means for you, at this point, in this moment. You catch glimpses of that. So you catch glimpses of time when you can see, ah, there actually is this purity of consciousness. These kalesas, these these visiting defilements, these greed, hatred, confusion, they come and they go. So we can catch glimpses of that and rest in that. Rest in the purity of awareness. So believing in the possibility of your own freedom is very important. Someone asked a question, I think it was yesterday, about um, something about this in the spiritual path. And there are many paradoxes in the spiritual path. So it's like, how could you be like, okay, I want to get to the island, but then be swimming here now, right? If you say like, oh, I want to become enlightened, but then the effort here now, right? I think it's just like anything, any journey we know metaphorically. So... If you wanted to go from here to San Francisco, you would think like, oh, I want to go to San Francisco. 
and then you might get the directions from there, or maybe you like uh, MapQuest it or something, right? And then along the way, you know you're going to San Francisco, but you can't just sit there going San Francisco, San Francisco, San Francisco. Like you actually have to take each step along the road and you have to pay attention to the road at this point. So first step, like go out the driveway, turn right. So you have to do that, turn right, not left. You know, if you just sit at the end of the driveway just going San Francisco, San Francisco, right? (laughs) It's not going to go, you're not going to get there, right? So you have to follow each step of the path, but at the same time hold the goal, you know what your goal is. So then along the way, you meet different things. So you stop in Fairfax. You see like, oh, ice cream, Fairfax. Mm, right? So you can stop there and have ice cream. Like, that's fine. But it's good to know, like, oh, I'm going to San Francisco. Right? I continue down the road right? like that. So like this, we can actually hold this possibility and believe in the possibility of freedom, but also stay where we are. And the next refuge is the Dhamma. And the Buddha actually says, one who, one who sees the Dhamma sees me. One who sees me sees the Dhamma. So the Dhamma is the teachings of the Buddha. All of these teachings that are being described to you here. But also the, the translation that I like and relate to more is the truth of the way things are. You know, Dhamma is nature. So the Buddha was someone who actually discovered this through his own awareness and then has given us the tools and the path to actually discover this to ourselves. So the encouraging thing about this is that it's not like an esoteric system that you have to like figure out or something like that. You know, it really is just the, the way things are. And taking refuge in the Dhamma means like I'm aligning myself with that. In fact, that's actually the only thing to take refuge in, the truth of the way things are. Taking refuge means understanding yourself to be a part of nature, yourself to be subject to those laws. Understanding the precepts is part of taking refuge in the Dhamma. So the precepts are this articulation of particularly powerful actions that we can take in the world and particularly powerful actions that we can let go of and renounce in the world that have a strong impact in terms of cause and effect. So it's said that someone who is enlightened naturally follows the precepts. You know, this is the natural way that someone acts when they are completely soaking in the understanding of interconnection. They act from this way of being. So the precepts also have some connection to refuge. And one of the, uh, the other meanings of refuge that's commonly used is like as a wildlife refuge. So a wildlife refuge is a place for animals uh, can feel safe because they won't be hunted there. So you probably have noticed, you know, around here we have these deer and turkeys and various other non-human beings who wander about, right, as they will. And it's pretty unusual, right? It's not a normal thing to see that in uh, human-animal interactions. And it's not officially a wildlife refuge, you know, in the way that some places are wildlife refuges. So what is it that makes this a place that feels safe for the animals? So it's actually the following of the precepts here, I would say. You know, it actually is that here people are following these precepts in which they're not going to kill them or not going to harm them. So then we actually let them do their thing and we do our thing and we can both like coexist. So this is giving a sense of safety, you know, through the precepts. And the Buddha also spoke about this very specifically, you know, the precepts as, uh, the five precepts as these five great gifts, original, long-standing, ancient, traditional, not open to suspicion, 
unfaulted by the wise. And for each of the precepts, he says, for example, for the, the one who abandons taking of life, they give freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless number of beings. And in giving this freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression to limitless number of beings, they too gain a share in this limitless freedom from danger, animosity, and oppression. So it's that by following each of these precepts, we actually give this gift that ripples outwards to all beings. And then we actually also gain a gift ourselves. This sense of safety. So by renouncing, actually, these actions that we might take otherwise habitually, of taking things, of harming, we actually give this gift of safety. And in renouncing these things, we ourselves actually also become safer for ourselves. We become a place of refuge for ourselves. So this is the teaching of the Dhamma, too. The helpful thing about the Dhamma and in this practice itself is that it's something that we can observe and learn. And so I like to liken this to the law of gravity. So understanding the Dhamma and aligning ourselves with the Dhamma, taking refuge, is kind of like the way that we learn about something in the natural world, like the law of gravity too. So when you're born, you don't know about the law of gravity. And you see babies doing things like throwing things off high chairs and watching them fall and tossing food off and spoons and cups and, uh, you know, on this side and on this side. And then the grown-ups come and fetch them and put them back, right? But eventually you start to learn about this and you figure out like, oh yeah, the law of gravity, this is how this works, right? So if I try to place, for example, this pen in midair, right? it's going to fall. And it wasn't an accident. Right? So then if I try it on this side, right, the same thing happens. And I could do it with this clock, I could do it with a piece of paper, I could do it with a glass of water. Right? All the time it would just fall to the ground. And it's not actually personal to me, so I don't need to feel, take it personally that the pen felt, fell down. Right? Like, you know, why me? Why now? Why? Right? You know? <laughs> like it's just the way things are. And if I learn to live in harmony with that, which means not placing glasses of mid- water in midair, you know, I will live a more harmonious life with less broken glass and less splashed water and less wet colleagues around me and stuff like that, right? So then we learn to live in accordance with this. So we just learn to live in harmony with the law of gravity. And for most adults, it's not really a problem to do this, right? Occasionally, you might do something and mess up and then pretty soon you catch yourself and you're like, oh, you don't even have to say the law of gravity, right? You don't have to articulate it, but you know, like, oh yeah, of course, that's why that happened. I was on an airplane recently where there was a um, teenager, young teenager sitting across the aisle from me. Uh, And so it may not be just babies who are experimenting with this. So he had a a bottle of soda and a sandwich. He was eating this and then he kept placing them on the ground. So prior to takeoff, you know, um, just placing the bottle of soda like right on the ground in the sandwich. And I was like, does he know the plane is going to take off? Like, you know, it's going <laughs> to... The, the law of gravity this is not, does not look good for this bottle of soda staying upright, you know, in this situation. So, um, uh, so fortunately, his, uh, his dad saw him engaging in this behavior and um, you know, told him to hold it in his lap before he actually had to learn, or we all had to learn through spilled soda down the aisle, you know. Um, But so we figure this out, right? And we live in accordance with this. And this is actually the Dhamma. This is the teachings that we understand. So this includes understanding, for example, impermanence. What can I take refuge in? What is there actually that is reliable? And actually then understanding, as we see this more and more, it's actually not the contents of my mind. It's actually not the experiences in my body, all of which are changing. It's not my ideas. It's not my identity. It's actually not something outside of myself at all. And it's actually not something that I call myself in any way. So 
So taking refuge in the Dhamma, the truth of the way things are. And when you take this, you can just connect with this as best as you can. Take, taking refuge in myself as part of nature. Taking refuge in the truth. The third refuge is taking refuge in Sangha. And the formal definition of this is the community of noble disciples of the Buddha. So at the time it meant actually the monastic disciples, nuns and monks who had attained enlightenment. And actually all those who had attained enlightenment on the path. So in some way these seem separate. There's the Buddha, there's the Dhamma, there's the Sangha. But then they all kind of blend together too. Because there's the Buddha. The Buddha says, when you see the Dhamma, you see me. Right? And then the Sangha is actually the expression of the Dhamma. So those enlightened beings, those who have attained liberation. Right? Now there are other meanings for, for a Sangha that have, um, can be reflected on too. One of which I think is just the understanding that we do not go this alone. So as, as spiritual practitioners, as people on a spiritual path, as just human beings in life, for all the reasons that we mentioned, it's difficult. Life is difficult. Practice can be challenging. Notice when you have some sense of yourself as some like solitary uh, being, like plowing through, you know, this struggly sense of it. And these are good times to actually take refuge. You know, letting go of this sense of like, here's me, the solo spiritual warrior, you know, fighting through this stuff. Or uh, not recognizing the interconnection, not recognizing the way in which we all support each other. Not recognizing the way in which we all live through each other. So these teachings clearly have come down from teacher to student and through the suttas and uh, all the way down 2,600 years across many different countries, across space and time. And this is largely due to the sangha. So this is due to the, the community of practitioners who actually had realized and who have passed this on. We also take refuge in the sangha of the community so it would be very difficult to do this retreat on your own. Which is probably why you came here. <laughs> so it's much easier to do this with the support of all of our fellow meditators here who are also following the schedule, with the support of the staff, with the support of the teachers. And in recognizing that, it's recognizing that this sense of ego, of me, myself, doing this alone, is actually is illusory. So taking refuge in this interconnection, taking refuge in the sense of love, in a sense of kindness, in a sense of compassion. So the formal articulation of these is, I take refuge in. But some other ways that you could say this is, I surrender to. And in the surrendering to, I think there's a, the part with the bowing, which I told you I was so resistant to, which actually adds to it. So I found that as I went along in my practice, uh, actually bowing was a very helpful thing. You know, the body affects the mind and the mind affects the body. And you can try this and see how it is for you. But when I bow down like this, you know, and say in my mind one of these refuges or take an intention very sincerely, it's very difficult to maintain this sense of like ego or like this grandiose sense of oneself. It's very humbling to bow down like that. And it's actually a good thing. This is a helpful part of our practice. So when you travel these days in the um, airports, you have to go through this, the metal detectors, right? And you have to put all your stuff in this, on the conveyor belt and take off your shoes. And, you know, basically you have to walk through this uh, sort of metal uh, frame uh, with nothing, right? But your basic clothes, right? You let you keep your basic clothes. You have to take off your belt and shoes and stuff, right? And while it still is uh, kind of a 
hassle to do that. I kind of appreciate that exercise. Like there's something about seeing everyone having to do that uh, that is actually sort of a beautiful and humbling thing. And seeing like, you know, business people and, you know, whoever you are, whatever it is, however important you are, however rich you are, it's like take it off, go through there. And there's actually some metaphor here too, I think, for our practice. So it's as if, you know, there's, there's actually this giant, this metal detector, the gate to Nibbana, you could say, right? <laughs> and it's very, very sensitive, you know, very sensitive. And, and you actually have to let go of everything, you know, in order to go through there, right? You have to let go of all of your identities. You have to let go of all these things that you're clinging to as your false refuges, you know. And just like, you know, if you go through the TSA one and you have like a, a barrette in your pocket or, you know, a paper clip, it goes off and then you have to like pat you down, take it out, right? Go through again, right? It's like this too. It's like, you know, very, very sensitive detector, right? So good news, you'll get a lot back when you come back, you know, just like the conveyor belt, right? <laughs> but actually, the, it'll all fit more loosely. You know, it's more, actually more comfortable, all the identities and things, you know. You can pick them up, put the change back in your pocket, put your identity back on, you know, you know where you live, all that stuff, you know. Uh, but you have much more freedom with it. And here's where the, the thing about refuge, you know, it's so uh, counter to what our culture says and to what our instinct might be. So our instinct is protect myself by armoring myself. You know, protect myself by getting more stuff. Protect myself by accumulating. And actually this protection and how we can rest in this place of the greatest safety is by letting go of everything. Letting go of everything, including actually our idea that we know what is going to happen. So I found this to be uh, the case as I've gone out in my practice is that more and more I'm able to rest in this and it's such a beautiful thing. There's so much more freedom in that, in being able to rest in the sense of not knowing. So I I teach in the city and um, I also live in the city and I, I do some work and move around on foot and on Muni and buses and BART. And periodically I run into someone who is a Dharma practitioner and who recognizes me and we have some conversation, like a Dharma conversation. And One time I was going to the bank recently and then I passed by this um, tea shop and there was a guy sitting there who recognized me and he asked me if I could talk to him for a little while. And so I did talk to him about his practice and uh, we actually had a very beautiful conversation, you know, and... It's not always that people can have conversations like that in the city, on the street, you know, of being uh, very open and very free and connecting with the truth. And when we finished the conversation, he was kind of in tears and he was like, oh, I bet you didn't think that was going to happen when you left your house today, you know. And I thought about it and I thought, I didn't, but I actually didn't know what was going to happen, you know. Like, I never know what's going to happen when I leave my house. And I don't have the expectation anymore. Like, I think he didn't think that was going to happen <laughs> today, but... But I don't know, and, and it's actually such a nice way to be able to live, you know. So resting in this not knowing, which seems like it actually is a place of weakness. It's like, oh, knowing is better. I know so much. I know, I know a lot of things. I know what's going to happen. I know who I am. I know who you are. I know what's going to happen. But it's all illusory, you know. It's all made up. So taking these refuges as your own is my recommendation for you. And all of these reflections that I share with you is just to inspire you to connect with them in your own way. So as you go through your practice, you know, even every time that you sit down, uh, you could see if it works for you to just connect with them. You know, we sit down in so many different places during the day. So you sit here, you sit in the dining hall, you sit on the toilet, you sit on your bed, right? All for different reasons. So orient your mind, orient yourself to what you're doing when you sit down. You know. This taking refuge is like just an orienting and then letting it go. Take it with as much sincerity as you can in your own words. You don't even have to use the Pali words. You, know, you don't have to use any of the words that I suggested here. But connecting with your own belief in your own freedom. You know, that you think this is possible. Connecting with the truth, connecting with what is most important for you. 
connecting with others, connecting with the sense of connection to a community. And at different times in your practice, one or other of those will be stronger and will feel like it's more meaningful. So follow that, trust that. Because here's the Buddha's words on refuge. Finally, you know, on his deathbed. So the Buddha's dying and some of his disciples are standing around and they're like crying and they're upset and he's saying, why are you crying? What are you so upset about? And you know, Ananda, his um, chief disciple, says, you know, because you're leaving us and I'm not enlightened yet and I don't know what to do. And he didn't name a successor and like, you're just leaving us, you know. And the Buddha says, you know, I've been teaching for 45 years here. Like, you know, the Dhamma is your teacher. And don't look for an external teacher. So he says, be a lamp unto yourself. Be a refuge unto yourself. Take yourself no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth, to the Dhamma as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourself. So he's saying this, not just to his disciples in that moment, but to all of us. And I'm saying this to you too. And there's different times you might believe this more or less, granted. But this is the practice of taking refuge, is connecting as best you can with these meanings of this and allowing it to change too and making it your own. So in this way, we can all become refuge unto yourself. In this way also, this idea of this dualism of like, oh, here's me and here's the thing I'm taking refuge in starts to collapse. So this is also one of the the kind of um, paradoxes of the spiritual path is a lot of this dissolving of dualisms, you know. So in the beginning, there's me and the teacher or there's me and this other thing or, you know, and then eventually they have to collapse into one. And this is what happens. Like we'll take refuge, it seems outside, but then it becomes inside. So this is uh, one of my favorite bumper stickers is, um, you know, there's, for a long time there's these bumper stickers that said, uh, God is my co-pilot, right? And um, now you don't see them so much anymore, but then I saw one that said, um, God was my co-pilot until our plane crashed in the mountains and I was forced to eat him, you know? <laughs> And uh, so this is referring to some, actually, story about a plane that crashed in the Andes with this, like, Uruguayan rugby team, and they resorted to cannibalism and so on, right? Um, But, you know, I I feel like the whole spiritual path is encompassed in this bumper sticker, because it's like, oh, here was me and God, and there was this idea that there was something outside of myself, you know, that was this guide. And then basically through adversity, i.e. the plane crash, right? You know, I had to eat him. Like, I had to eat that which I had separate. You know, that which was separate from myself. Like, I had to make that become myself. Like, we became one through that adversity, right? So that's kind of a bizarre metaphor, I understand. But uh, <laughs> but there's a way in which, like, that's what we're doing with this refuge. You know, notice when it's outside and then making it one. And, you know, all of this stuff is happening. There's food outside, you make it one. You connect with something, make it one, right? So this is what I wish for you, too. So let's just sit together for a moment. So connecting with your own awareness. Letting go of any of the words that were unhelpful. Connecting to your own connection with your own goodness. And that which you know to be true through your own experience. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be a refuge unto yourself. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourself.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.